You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 7th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Midori House here in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On today's show, relief efforts in Turkey and Syria are severely hampered amid aftershocks from yesterday's earthquake in the region. Norway is proposing an unprecedented $7 billion aid package to Ukraine. We'll get the details from Oslo. We'll also have a look through the front pages with Juliet Lindley in Zurich. Juliet, what do you have for us? Hello, Georgina. Well, the Swiss papers are all over a David and Goliath court case between four inhabitants of an island in Indonesia and a Swiss cement conglomerate. Thank you, Juliet. We'll also hear from the Nordic's biggest design event, the Stockholm Furniture Fair. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Aftershocks continue in southern Turkey and northern Syria following the earthquake yesterday that's thought to have killed more than 5,000 people, destroyed thousands of buildings and much vital infrastructure. The World Health Organization says the number of casualties could exceed 20,000. Well, joining me on the line from Ankara is the journalist Victoria Craig. Victoria, many thanks for coming on the show. Those figures are changing all the time. Can you give us some idea of the scale of the destruction? Well, you're absolutely right, Georgina. As you say, the numbers are changing. It feels like by the minute, every time I look, it's it's the unfortunate reality that the death toll is rising. So I'll run you through the latest official figures from the government. More than 3,000 people have been killed here in Turkey, and that number rises to 5,000 when you include the death toll in northern Syria. 21,000 have been injured. 5,000 buildings have been destroyed in southern Turkey. And obviously, the ongoing search and rescue efforts are underway. And as that happens, there are fears that those numbers can and likely will rise. Um, some tell us it could be as high in the, in the tens of thousands, um, but obviously that is nowhere near confirmed as of yet. Um, there have been two more earthquakes today um, above a 5.0 magnitude, 5.1 and 5.3, um, in the region again today. So as I say, this is as ongoing search and rescue efforts continue to find people in the rubble, and it's this bone-chilling cold that has been um, gripping the region um, and indeed gripping the country here in Ankara, the capital, miles away um, in, in the northern part of the country. It's uh, definitely below freezing. <laughs> my hands my hands are very cold um, standing out here. I'm in, I'm in the, um, the central square in the capital here. Um, so we're just keeping an eye on, on these numbers and, and the effects that, that they're having. I understand that you've been at the Red Crescent Blood Donation Station. Did you speak to people there? Yes, and it has been very busy today. Um, I was here probably about two hours ago, and it's just a little trailer that's set up here in the in the central square. And I would say that there were more than a hundred people in line just um, waiting to give blood. Um, I talked to one of the volunteers who was helping to run the station, and she was saying that some people have come back for the second day because the demand to give blood was just too high yesterday. They couldn't um, they couldn't accept it fast enough. She said that um, that the the blood bank stockpiles are are looking really good. Um, and, and that's good news. Um, when you talk to people who stand in line, as I said, it's really cold here. So you have to be willing <laughs> to stand in line and wait. And the mood is 
sort of twofold. You know, there's people excited to do what they can to help, you know, people across this country um, and others who feel much more somber about what's happened um, and feel as though, you know, they want to do their part. I talked to one medical student who was waiting in line and he'd been waiting for at least an hour, he said at the time. Um, And he also had a bag full of donations, you know, coats, jackets, blankets, just things to keep people warm. And he was really upset. He said he, he wasn't doing very well. He just wanted to do what he could today to help people in southern Turkey. A great response then from local people. But there's also been a big uh, foreign effort. You were at the command centre talking to the director of international partnerships. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so we've seen a, a big outreach from the Turkish government here, you know, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan asking for help from other countries all around the world and other countries doing, you know, responding in that way through financial aid, through support for search and rescue teams. And we've seen them um, on their way. Uh, there's pictures all over the Internet of, of search and rescue teams, even with their rescue dogs, um, you know, waiting to, to be deployed here uh, to southern Turkey. As you said, yeah, I spoke to the director of international partnerships at the Red Crescent, which is like the Red cross. Um, so we were sort of at the command center uh, just outside the city here. And, you know, he talked about how, you know, based on the government's response, there have been lessons learned from you know, the last time the country experienced a disaster on this scale um, in the early 1990s. Um, you know, they've mobilized thousands, he said, um, uh, aid workers with the Red Crescent with help from other Red Cross networks um, from all around the world. It's not just a blood drive efforts going on in various parts of this country and others. It's also donations, as I said, with food and um, mental health support even because people, you know, sitting in without power and freezing cold temperatures, you know, waiting for rescuers to get to you and your family and the people that you know and not sure how your family is doing. So he said mental health support is crucial uh, with this disaster. And they've deployed also food kitchens to, to, to try to serve hot food in those in those areas as well. Um, the one thing that he did caution is that, you know, people really have this huge desire to help people all across this country. And I will say that that is one thing that I see time and time again in Turkey is that, you know, it's just this community spirit rallying together, you know, whether it's <laughs> dealing with the effects of sky high inflation or, you know, indeed a natural disaster like the one that we're seeing now, um, you know, that that's great. But he said he encouraged people not to try to drive, um, you know, volunteers to drive to the affected areas areas to stay to stay away instead because you know it's it's clogging roadways that are icy and snow covered and you know ruined from the earthquakes themselves um those vital roadways he said you know need to be kept clear for emergency services absolutely victoria craig in ankara thank you very much indeed let's cross now to paul rogers who's open democracy's international security advisor paul this would be an enormous tragedy wherever it took place in the world but there are particular complexities here uh, around the border regions the main problem, I think, with the border region is actually getting access in the first place. Um, the worst affected areas like uh, Idlib province, but also towards the major city of Aleppo to the east. Well, Idlib is under control of rebels. Uh, the Aleppo area is just barely recovering from the assaults that it had when the government retook it. And the thing is that although people have gone back into many buildings, the buildings themselves are dilapidated and very prone to aircraft, uh, to earthquake damage. So overall, you've got the physical problems. Getting the access in is the real difficulty. Um, the Syrian government currently is intent on quotes being in charge and insisting everything goes through it. The problem is it isn't in control. It isn't in charge. And of course, people will say that Syria is doing this basically to make it more difficult for the rebel areas in spite of the terrible problems they're having with the earthquake. On top of that, the Syrian economy as a whole 
is in a very deep problem in many ways, including major problems of malnutrition and lack of food. And the UN basically regards it as one of the, the lead parts of the world in terms of major aid. Now, if you put that together with the effect of this earthquake, and as I was saying earlier on, this happened at night when people were inside, just at a cold, wet time of year, and it was two earthquakes in succession. Put that together and you get some idea of the problem this is being faced. But it does come back also to the politics of this particular region, not in Turkey, but in northern Syria. And there are many people saying in Turkey that it wasn't the earthquake so much as corrupt systems, lack of building regulations, accountability and proper planning permissions. Well, I'm sure that is probably correct. I mean, if the Turks are saying that, if people are saying that in Turkey, for Turkey, then imagine what it is like in Syria. As I say, Turkey as a country is relatively well prepared for earthquakes, but protecting buildings is a different matter. And this is a historic problem. If this is one of the worst earthquakes to hit this part of Turkey in some generations, then there's always the risk that the regulations have become lax. People have sort of been lulled into a false sense of security, and then maladministration and corruption comes in. And you will find that in virtually any country. As I say, the basic response may be fast, but this is an overwhelming catastrophe, far greater than you would normally get. Um, Both earthquakes happen in relatively unpopulated regions. It's when this combination happens that you really have formidable problems. And Paul, not only is Turkey at the epicentre of this awful uh, geographical problem, but it's also at the epicentre of of global politics right now, with everything that's going on with Ukraine, with Syria, with Russia, Turkey um, absolutely located strategically in the middle of that and with an election coming up. How are the politics of what's going on in the region going to affect the cleanup from this? I think it's going to be very difficult. Now, in Turkey, they may get the aid. As you say, it's a very tight period politically. Erdogan is facing an election very soon. There's some question about the exact date, but it's certainly very soon. And there are elections for the assemblies as well. So that, I think, will be bound up in this. There may be efforts to give an indication, perhaps not accurate, that the response is very good. And the reality is a heck of a lot of ordinary people will be trying to help. There will be help coming in from outside. But the problem is that to actually meet this kind of issue, you you require a very high level of organization and preparedness in terms of the building structures. Mm. Um, Most earthquake problems can actually be avoided. You find that when earthquakes affect areas which have not had modern urban development, but people basically have learned over maybe hundreds or thousands of years how to adapt to the possibility of an earthquake, including the nature of the buildings built and the rest, then they can cope a lot better. And it's also possible, not so much for earthquakes, but other disasters, to have a country which is very much centrally run, which actually has very high standards of performance, as Cuba does in hurricanes. You know, it seems to compare better than almost any other country. But you have this complexity now, which I think is is very difficult to counter in a way. But coming back to your original point, it's, it's really in northern Syria that the worst problems will be and there's going to be a very strong propaganda element from the different sides as to who is responsible. And the end problem is that it's everybody's responsible to an extent. I'm bound to say I think it will be the Assad regime which bears the brunt of the criticism. Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Now, here's Monocle's Carlotta Rabello with the day's other news headlines.
Thanks, Georgina. Ukraine says the last 24 hours were the deadliest of the war so far for Russian troops, as Moscow sends tens of thousands of freshly mobilized soldiers into winter assaults in the east. The Ukrainian military increased its tally of Russian military dead to 133,000 overnight. It also said its troops had destroyed 25 tanks in the last two days. U.S. officials say a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon shot down off the U.S. coast was about 60 meters tall and carrying an airliner-sized load. A U.S. defense official said the size and makeup of the balloon prevented it from being shot down while it was over land. The U.S. is still working to recover debris off the coast of South Carolina. And plane maker Boeing plans to cut about 2,000 jobs from its Finance and Human Resources Department this year. The move comes as the aerospace company puts more of its resources into products, services and technology development. Boeing says that it will overall increase its headcount with a focus on engineering and manufacturing. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Many thanks, Carlotta. Now, Norway has proposed to provide $7.3 billion of aid to Ukraine over a five-year period. The Nordic country is a major petroleum exporter, and as a result of this, the government income has increased to record levels following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which forced huge increases to the price of gas in Europe. Well, joining me on the line is Lars Bavanga, who's our Oslo correspondent. Lars, a few days ago, a group of Norwegian academics, rights campaigners, best selling authors and a former minister urged Oslo to increase its support for Ukraine. What was the rationale behind this open letter by some of the country's leading luminaries? Well, it is very much what you said in your introduction there, the fact that Norway has made so much extra money on the rising gas prices and the falling gas exports from Russia. Norway is now Europe's largest gas exporter because Russian gas supplies have been shut off. That that money, they argued, should be put to good use and help Ukraine because, of course, the extra money has come into Norwegian coffers, state coffers, because of the war in Ukraine. Now, the Norwegian Prime Minister, Jonas Garstura, already uh, before Christmas last year, uh, hinted that a package like this, a long-term aid package, was in the making. And uh, yesterday we, we got the details of that. The proposed grant is over five years and it won't necessarily go to the Ukrainian government. Is that because there are still concerns about corruption? Ukraine, after all, before the war, was rated as one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. That is part of it. Uh, it's also very important, the Norwegian government has pointed out, to coordinate this aid with other countries' help uh, to Ukraine. So they will be coordinating humanitarian aid with the, the, the most advanced humanitarian aid organisations that are already in Ukraine, while the military aid uh, should be coordinated with uh, other European countries and the US so that uh, the aid can flow as, as, as easily as possible. It, it's no good for each country uh, to, to try to do their own thing in Ukraine, the argument goes. So the, this coordination is, is very, very important. So therefore, also, they can't just give all this money directly to the Ukrainian government. Mm. And how has Ukraine reacted to the news? Uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, welcomed him. He said he was very grateful uh, to the Norwegian government and the Norwegian prime minister in particular. He called it a significant contribution uh, in uh, Ukraine's fight 
against Russia and also for Ukraine's post-war recovery. Of course, this is we, we, we should hope that the war will be uh, over before this aid package is over. So a, a lot of it is aimed for the rebuilding of Ukraine after the war and after the fighting has ended. But for this first year, uh, um, it, it's uh, we're talking about um, 15 billion Norwegian krona. That's about 1.5 US dollars every year for five years. And this first year, it will be evenly divided between military aid and uh, humanitarian aid. Uh, thank you very much there to Lars Bavanga. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Now joining me from our Zurich studio is the journalist and former Vatican correspondent, Juliet Lindley. Hello, Juliet. Hello, Georgina. Hello from Zurich. Uh, Now we're looking at the Swiss story first, and this is about some Indonesians suing a Swiss cement conglomerate. Tell us more. That's it. And I'm going to take the NZZ, for instance, which is has a banner headline saying climate change is threatening their paradise. So 11,000 kilometers might well separate the Indonesian island of Pari from the Swiss city of Zug. But climate change knows no boundaries. And so four Indonesians have filed a civil lawsuit against Swiss cement giant Holcim on the grounds that the conglomerate is destroying their homeland and sinking their island. So the islanders accuse Holcim of contributing to climate change with their carbon dioxide emissions and of threatening the very existence of the 1,500 inhabitants of Pari. And by 2050, they fear the sea will have swallowed up large parts of the island. So you may ask, Georgina, well, what this David and Goliath suit is based on? Well, Article 28 in the Swiss Civil Code says that if someone is unlawfully infringed upon they can bring legal action for their protection against anyone who participates in that infringement. Interesting. So this is the first lawsuit of its kind and uh, the legal battle looks formidable, Georgina, but if the plaintiffs are proven right, I guess we could expect a domino effect worldwide with large polluting conglomerates in the legal crossfires. Now bear in mind that the Swiss group doesn't even do business in Indonesia anymore. In 2018 it sold its uh, Indonesian arm to Indonesian group, but no no one in the world produces as much cement as Holcim, and it's among the 100-plus particularly climate-damaging corporations that are said to be responsible for 70% of the world's historical emissions. Let's go to your former beat now, the Vatican, although actually the Vatican has uh, uh, travelling themselves. Uh, <laughs> South Sudan, this pilgrimage of peace. The Pope has been there, uh, and uh, so have leaders of the Anglican and the Reformed traditions uh, uh, in this very, very troubled region. Indeed. So the pontiff is now back at his desk at the Vatican, having been in Africa for almost a week, and it was a grueling tour of both the Democratic Republic of Congo and of South Sudan. So we'll focus on this second part of the trip, which was indeed a historic first, as it was carried out in conjunction, as you said, with the heads of the Anglican and the Church of Scotland. So the interfaith pilgrimage of faith saw the three religious heads leading a prayer service together in predominantly Christian South Sudan's capital, Juba, and they also met a group of displaced people in this war-torn yet very rich in oil reserves country. But Georgina, the highlight of all papal trips for us journalists 
at least, is always the press conference aboard the return flight home. And this one didn't disappoint. So Francis accused critics of instrumentalizing the death of his predecessor, Pope Benedict, saying that the divisions exposed in the wake of his passing have more to do with ideology than faith. And as many of our listeners will uh, no doubt have heard, no sooner had the Pope Emeritus been buried than a slew of books and articles were released, appearing to pit conservative Benedict against liberal Francis with almost a Catholic civil war breaking out, if you will, and not exactly portraying the two as the best of friends. So on board the flight, the Pope attempted to tamp down those accusations, while also touching on other issues like the war in Ukraine. He said again that he's willing to try to broker peace and meet both Zelensky and Putin, and the criminalization of homosexuality in several countries. Now, he and the other Christian leaders on board, both they all three vehemently denounced anti-gay laws and saying that it's a sin to condemn someone for being gay. And yet, yeah, and yet you still can't get married in the church, in, in many churches. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Uh, let's pick up where we left off on the war. Um, and this is about uh, the San Remo Festival in Italy. Now, of course, this is a, a, a fabulous festival. And uh, Vladimir Zelensky was going to appear via video link. But that's been stopped. That's indeed the issue here. So it's the country's most famous music festival. It's like the Eurovision contest for Europe, but it's just for Italians. And um, we've just found out that a controversial video appearance by Zelensky will not take place. He was slated to pop up in a video link up at the end of the uh, of the Sanremo Festival to wrap it all up. And he was expected to, you know, thank Italians for their support against Russians. But instead, he's going to send a written message, which the compere of the show will read out because over the last weeks there'd been huge protests over the planned um, appearance with some saying that it would trivialize the war and others saying that it was inappropriate for a show like Sanremo to have such an appearance which is interesting Georgina if you think about it because Zelensky happily appeared at other events including last year's Grammys but at least his message will be transmitted after all. Absolutely Juliet thank you very much indeed. That's Juliet Lindley there in Zurich. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. back with the briefing from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin and Scandinavia's largest design fair, the Stockholm Furniture Fair, began today. Monocle's design editor Nick Manise is there and he joins me on the line now. Hello, Nick. Hello, Georgina Godwin. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's two years since the the last fair because, of course, COVID. Uh, What's the mood like? I think it's it's very optimistic. I mean, it's, it's one of those funny ones where... It was postponed a few times and ultimately just cancelled, even though it feels like it it was going to be rescheduled for September last year when things kind of felt a bit normal. But, yeah, completely cancelled. So it's it's been a two-year wait. Um, And uh, people are excited. I mean, this this is like the most significant fair for for Nordic design um, or Scandinavian design. You compare it to something like Salone del Mobile or even uh, Maison Objet, 
in Paris, uh, Salone obviously in, in Milan, and, and there's a lot more, I guess, global brands represented, but, but really here it's, it's a, a super strong Scandinavian presence. So and uh, I, that's what makes it so significant. Who's who's there? I mean, many of the. I mean, I know you you spend your 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 life uh, selflessly circulating the globe in uh, service of of good design. Uh, so, who is there that's di- that differs from places like perhaps Salone de Mobile? I mean, String Furniture is one I'm, I'm looking at. I mean, they they do have a global a global presence. So that that is one of their. Uh, this is is really the, their best installation I've, I've seen. Uh, there's Stolab, who are from Sweden, who uh, you know you, you don't see anywhere else. Uh, I'm, I'm literally filming through the trade halls right now. Vestre as well. Again, they're they're picking and choosing, but they've really doubled down here here at Stockholm. Uh, they're from Norway. Uh, Albin as well from from Denmark. There's, there's I guess brands that maybe pick or choose other ones or don't go at all that are, that are really turning out in force. Mm. Now, when we think of Scandinavian design, we think of uh, cool, clean lines. Is that still very much the theme? Yeah, cool, cool clean lines is, is a nice way of putting it. I mean, I, I think more than anything, it's, it's a... Uh, actually, and Vestre, who, who I mentioned before, one of their designers, Daniel Ryback, who talks uh, about events he's created um, that is, I guess, about simplicity, but also... Uh, I guess in, in the, the spaces left or the, or the voids left by the forms, he's created a bench, I guess, with two linear beams and, and an extruded uh, steel face, which really is, is three, three elements. Uh, but but the, the spaces left and the spaces created by these twisting timber beams and, and again, the, the folded steel, I guess, footing, whilst that might be simple, actually, the, the complexity behind it is, is what makes it most exciting and kind of draws you in. So there are cool, clean lines, but the closer you look, you start to realise that there's, I guess, a, a lot more to it. So from a distance, maybe it's quite aesthetically ap- appealing and paired back. But when you get up, there's a real appreciation for, for craftsmanship um, and, and, yeah, beautiful, beautiful forms and beautiful ways of, of, of making things. And are the objects on view there just for furniture buyers or are we going to have access to them in the general market? I mean, everyone can have access to these. Certainly they're, they're targeting sort of architects and, and uh, uh, you know, who might select pieces for some of their projects, whether that's uh, a smaller home or, or, you know, they're doing a hotel and they need 500 chairs, uh, at, you know, made contract at scale. Uh, but, uh, I mean, if, Georgina, if you really wanted to join me as I, you know, globetrot and tirelessly go to these design fairs, you could you know, be more than welcome to come down and pick a few pieces for yourself. <laughs> Do you know what? I think that they're unlikely to have a faux snakeskin covered chaise longue, which is what I'm really after. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep an eye out. That's good tonight. That is really good tonight. <laughs> is there anything, though, that you've seen that you would really like to bring back for yourself? I, I mean, I mentioned String before, uh, and this is a uh, you know Scandinavian company known for its, its shelving system, um, really beautiful, simple, I guess, sort of modular components. And they've uh, you know, and, and it, it's really one, I guess, family that, that's been design, designed. It's got a really strong look and feel, a really strong identity. But they've just launched the Pira G2, which is another shelving system, but uh, I guess is completely different. It is completely shaking it up for the brand. Um, it's it's freestanding uh, metal shelving that could be, uh, you know, the, the height can be adjusted up and down, but then it's got also these timber components that you can place on it to help, you know, store your books, store, uh, you know, beautiful objects. Um, and I, I like the fact that it can be wall-mounted or freestanding, so you can actually use it as a really 
nice uh, room divider, maybe something to go up against that, uh, you know, animal print chase lounge as you sit out. <laughs> Nick Manise, thank you very much indeed. Nick is at the Stockholm Furniture Fair and it sounds like a great place to join him. That's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Paminchuin and our studio manager was Nora Hull. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thank you for listening.